0: You know, as Mark started, because now we're in chapter four, as it started, it began with making a statement in chapter one that Jesus went out preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. Remember, this was a big deal, this statement, because it expresses to us the way that Jesus thought of the gospel, his good news. Remember, gospel is not a churchy word. It was a political term that meant a a proclamation or statement that would change your life forever. Not just normal news or a news update like daily news. No, this was... This was life-altering, massive news. And Jesus uses that political term to talk about himself. And the gospel, the good news, the proclamation that would change your life forever was connected to, remember, the kingdom, his kingdom. That's what Jesus went out teaching. And remember then his teaching almost exclusively is in regard to the kingdom. And then his life and ministry give you a glimpse into what the kingdom will look like, where people are no longer Uh, they're no longer suffering where they're made whole and they're made well where where they're set free where there's joy and love and peace and freedom that he teaches us about the kingdom but then everywhere that jesus the king goes the kingdom of heaven is experienced and realized remember jesus goal was he came to take back to redeem creation and then to set up to restore his kingdom And as we've moved through the first three chapters of Mark's gospel, thus far, Mark has made it clear to us that Jesus has said again and again, he's doing a new thing that he's going to establish his kingdom, but he's yet to really tell us what that kingdom is like and how Jesus will establish it. And Mark four, Jesus shifts gears now to do those very things to tell us, here's what my kingdom is like, and here's how I'm going to establish it. And the way that he will do that, the way that he'll give us insight into those areas is that Jesus, remember, begins to use parables. So what's the kingdom like? What's what's it going to be? How is he going to establish it? Well, Jesus doesn't just show up with a series of lectures to explain that. Instead, he paints a series of poetic pictures that cause us to think and to imagine what it will be like and how he will establish it. You know, roughly 35% of what Jesus teaches that's recorded for us in the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, roughly 35% of it is parables that Jesus taught us. And when it comes to Jesus' parables, there's a couple things that I think are worth you thinking through and keeping in mind. And so I'll throw these out to you really quickly and then we're gonna read the text together. But a few things that when you're looking at the parables that you should be looking for, or a few things that you should make sure you're always giving attention to. So if you're a note taker, write these things down quickly. The first is this, when looking at the parables of Jesus, I think we need to always be looking through the lens of asking, well, what does this teach me about Jesus and his kingdom? because they're rightfully referred to as the kingdom parables. In fact, today, Jesus will tell us a series of kingdom stories. So what do these stories, remember, parables were used to effectively reveal truth and at the same time conceal it. For the people who had opened their minds and hearts, the good soil that we previously learned about, these, these stories would reveal to them what Jesus would be doing and what his kingdom would be like and how they would help to expand that kingdom. But for those who had hardened their hearts and rejected Jesus, these stories concealed the truth of who Jesus was and what he was doing. These stories are almost exclusively about his kingdom, though. And so we have to pause and ask ourselves, what does the parable teach me about Jesus and about his kingdom? Because first and foremost, that's what they're about. And then secondarily, they're about me and my place in and response to the truths that are revealed in his stories about his kingdom. But the second thing I think when we look at a parable that we ought to keep in mind is the question of, well, well, what question does this parable answer? Biblical scholars, they've looked at Jesus' teachings and they estimate between 33 and 60 times Jesus uses a parable. The reason there's a huge gap between 33 and then 60 times is because if you're counting Jesus' single little sentence statements that were parabolic, that were mysterious, little poetic proverb-like statements, if you include those in the count, then you hit that number of 60. If you don't, then you're down at the lower number of just 33. But 22 of those parables, are in response to and answering a specific question. And so sometimes when we look at the parables, we have to slow down and go, what initiated Jesus telling this story? It's why, or it's what happens in Luke 15 when a group of religious leaders come to Jesus and his disciples and say, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And then Jesus launches into three parables about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and then lost sons. It's Jesus looking out at a crowd and and then singling out an individual who comes to him and says, What do I need to do? And Jesus told him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And the man asked the question, Well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus launches into a story about his neighbor. So, what's the question? that Jesus is answering. Now here's a third thing to view the parables through. Not just, okay, what's it teach me about Jesus and his kingdom? Is it answering a question, but also then, a third thing, what's the punchline of the story? I think sometimes with parables we get bogged down in the details of it when we're meant to step back and just catch the punchline of it. What's the final statement or the point to his stories? Scholars say that all but nine of these 33 parables that Jesus teaches end with some sort of a punchline. And those that don't, they end purposefully open-ended. Like to leave you in a tension where you know, hang on, Jesus finished this. And, and uh, Jesus, where's, where's the punchline? What's the point? And then you find yourself feeling the tension, knowing I have a choice now of what I will do. I have a choice now of which way I will go. I have a choice now of what I will do. It's the story of the prodigal sons where it ends with the final statement where the father says to the elder brother who wouldn't come in and rejoice with him. He tells them it's right for us to rejoice. It's right to rejoice over a sinner who's being rescued and saved. And then he leaves them in that tension. It's think about it, the punchline. It's the parable of the wedding feast where he invites everyone in, but not everyone was willing or ready to come in and celebrate. And Jesus finishes with the punchline saying that many are called, but few are chosen. It's the parable of the wicked vine dressers where there's a master who entrusts a landowner who entrusts his vineyard to a bunch of hired servants who are meant to steward it, but they don't do so well at all. They fail to. And then he finishes with the punchline of saying, Well, when the owner of the vineyard returns, what will he do with these wicked vine dressers who have squandered with what, what they've been entrusted to use? It's the punchline of uh, some would point to when Jesus tells the story about the Good Samaritan, whether that's a parable or a story. I think it's worthy of your consideration, one or the other. But either way, there's a point to it where he then ends with a punchline and a question where he says, well, who was a neighbor to him? So it's not just view it through the lens of, okay, what's it teaching about Jesus and his kingdom? Is it answering a question? But then the third thing is, what's the punchline in the story? But a fourth thing. What did Jesus want the original hearers to think and picture and learn? We need to view it through a lens of a first century audience because there is imagery that Jesus will use in his parables that for us is very foreign. Like if he was in our context, he might use different illustrations than the one that he used, but they were familiar images that people could easily picture. And sometimes for us, however, they are unfamiliar images and things we tried to picture. So we have to take the time to carefully consider what would be easily understood and pictured and, and depicted in the minds of a first century audience. It's the idea like we talked about a few weeks ago where Jesus talks about the strong man in a house And we're like, we don't quite understand that. But in an ancient setting like theirs, where you didn't have a a secure, federally backed and insured banking system, if you had a lot of money, you typically hired a buff guy to live in your house to protect your goods because that was your banking system. And for us, we can get lost in some of those details. It's, it's even the, we've mentioned Luke 15 already a couple times in the last couple of minutes, but it's Luke 15, we don't understand the shame involved in the younger son going to dad and saying, I want my inheritance now, even while you're living. We have to slow down and consider those things. So what do they teach me about the kingdom? What question does it answer? What's the punchline? What's the first century audience understand that I need to slow down and make sure I'm catching? But then the fifth thing is this, what's the action? that jesus expects from me because of this you see jesus parables are more than just information they're about transformation in my thinking and my living not just what do you believe but because of these things god is saying to me trevor how will you behave what will your life look like when we look at the parables, we have to keep these sorts of things in mind. So let's jump into them. Because the first parable Jesus told, we talked about a couple of weeks ago, it's a very familiar one uh, to many of us. It's the parable of the sower and, and the soil and the seed. And we talked about this how it's about our response to Jesus. But Jesus wraps up this section with a few more, three more kingdom stories that we'll quickly hit this morning before transitioning into a time of communion. So Mark chapter four is where we'll find those. And then Mark four ends with, next time we're together, one of my favorite stories in the gospels where Jesus proves his authority over the sea. An incredible uh, story and situation that has like it's pregnant with imagery, that's a ton of fun to open up. So next week we'll do that. This week kingdom story. So look in your Bible, Mark chapter four, beginning verse twenty-one. Also Jesus said to them, Is a lamp brought to be put under a basket or under a bed? Is it not to be set on a lampstand? For there's nothing hidden which will not be revealed, nor has anything been kept in secret, but that it should come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Then he said to them, take heed what you hear or some of your translations probably do a better job even than my New King James translation and it will be rendered, take heed how you hear. Because that's really what Jesus is talking about here. With the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. And to you who hear, more will be given. For whoever has, to him more will be given. But whomever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Now another story. And Jesus said the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground and should sleep by night and rise by day, and this seed should sprout and grow. He himself does not know how. For the earth yields crops by itself. First the blade, then the head. After that, the full grain in the head. But when the grain ripens, immediately he picks, uh, puts in the sickle because the harvest time has come. Now, here's the third story. Then Jesus said to what shall we liken the kingdom of God? Remember, these are kingdom parables, kingdom stories. Or with what parable shall we picture it? It is like a mustard seed which when it is sown on the ground is smaller than all the seeds of the earth. But when it is sown, it grows up and becomes greater than all the herbs and shoots out larger branches so that the birds of the air may nest under its shade. Okay, so what do we learn about Jesus' kingdom? And then how do we respond to Jesus' stories about the kingdom? How do we respond then as members of his kingdom? Well, Jesus begins with a story here about a lamp. And in, in the land of Israel, archaeologists have found so many little tiny clay lamps that, that they're not even numbered anymore. But if you go to Israel, you could buy one uh, from an antiquities dealer and then you could try to smuggle it out of the country or you probably even get paperwork where you could do it legally. Or you can go there and pretty much most places you visit offer replicas for very cheap Um, Or for me, because I used to lead groups of students, they would just give them to me. They'd give me all sorts of things at the end of a trip, and they were so hokey. But this one was nice. The other things, I typically look at the students with me, and and the last night we were together, I'd say, who forgot to buy mom or dad a gift? And whoever raised their hand, I'd say, like, here's an olive wood uh, cover for your Bible, because that sounds really comfortable to carry around (laughs) under your arm. Uh, but one of the things that they'll give out to you is these little tiny lamps. This is what Jesus is talking about. These little household lamps, little tiny oil lamps. You'd pour some oil inside of it. A little wick would drop into it. And you'd light it because most of the homes in, in antiquity, back in Bible times, were single room dwellings. And so this light would not be too harsh, but if you placed it up... Usually you'd have rock walls or, or stone or clay walls and you'd have a little alcove that would jettison out of the wall that you could place the lamp onto a stand and it would effectively, not harshly, but effectively illuminate the whole house. Now you could easily then place something in front of it to block the light that would flood in one direction or the other in your little one room dwelling place because the whole family would sleep in that dwelling place and if mom and dad weren't tired or had things to do but the kids were going out, you could creatively place things around it to to effectively block the light if you needed to but the point of having a lamp in your home was not to block the light or put it under a basket as Jesus said or slide it under the bed the point was that a little tiny lamp like this could illuminate the entirety of a house and so Jesus picks up on what's very familiar imagery and I think there's a point that he's making here and there's a handful of them that will walk through in these stories and the first is this about the kingdom That what is in secret will soon be revealed in the open. That's the first thing that I want to share with you. that, That what is in secret will soon be revealed in the open. And although I think that that is true in a negative sense, I think that Jesus' point here is really more about in a positive manner that's true, that what is in secret will soon be revealed in the open. You probably understand the negative side of this, that this is true in a negative sense, that the things that I think and the things that I say and the things that I do, although they may be in secret today, they'll never stay in secret forever, That what's not seen by other people is seen and known by God for sure. And the Bible tells us with certainty that we will always reap what we sow. Think about this as a principle. Like the law of gravity is something we can't get out from under. We might not even believe in gravity, but we're still affected by it. I might stand on the roof of this awning and say, I, gravity no more or whatever, like I don't buy this and jump off the end, but I'm still subject to the reality and impact of the law of gravity. And I think the law of sowing and reaping is something that we're subject to as well, whether we like it or not. And you might say, well, I don't even believe in that. But the law of sowing and reaping is that you'll always reap the same, <coughs> that you'll always reap more, but the deceptive thing is that you'll always reap later. It's not just with seeds that go on the ground that that's true, but even with my life's activity and behavior, that when I'm sowing things, I will always reap the same, I'll always reap more, but I'll always reap later, which is what can be so deceptive about it. You see, sowing and reaping, I believe, is a law that we're all subject to, even like gravity is. And if you think, if you think that you can beat the system, Well, then you're misunderstanding, I think, what sin itself is. When you think about it, sin isn't bad because it's forbidden. God forbid things and called them sinful because they are destructive. Think about that again. Sin isn't bad because it's forbidden by God. It's forbidden by God because it's bad and destructive for you. Because God created not just nature itself with an order for things to function and work properly, but even a society for things to or be ordered and function and work properly, even within a a home, within a family, within a marriage, and even within my own heart and soul. God has a creative order that He's made things to function rightly, properly. So when He says that something is sinful, it's not that it's forbidden for us, because God said it. bad it's that god said it's forbidden because of how destructive it would be to our world or to society or to my family or in my marriage or in my own life personally and so if you think that i can beat the system because i'm doing this destructive thing and no one sees it and and there's no consequences we always reap the same we even reap more but you ought to know sometimes we reap later But we can't beat this because it's like the law of gravity. But this is not just a negative thing, I think, that Jesus is teaching here. That what's in secret, he says, will soon be revealed out in the open. It's a positive thing. What was heard and understood and believed by the disciples in the early chapters of the gospel and the early life and ministry of Jesus would one day be made clear to all of creation. I mean, think about Jesus and his kingdom. The Old Testament saints were unclear about what to expect. Uh, There were things that were absolutely mysterious to them. They knew that God promised a deliverer who would come and save them. And that deliverance would be crushing the head of the ultimate enemy of Satan. But in doing so, that that savior would be wounded. That promise is, is echoing from the Garden of Eden itself all the way through the prophets with little details being added. But it's a mystery that's shrouded. And now Jesus stands before them. Saying the mystery is now revealed to you. God's illuminated and revealed his kingdom. He's revealing what was previously concealed and mysterious. Remember Mark chapter 4 verse 11 where Jesus looked at his disciples and said to you it's been given to understand the mystery of the kingdom of God. Jesus is telling us here that a lamp is not used to hide things but it's used to reveal and expose them. And Jesus is saying and that's what I've come to do. Now, if Jesus walked into a modern setting, he might not use the imagery of a lamp. He might even use the imagery of a microphone because we all understand a microphone really carries that same goal as well. A microphone is not used to to hide sound. It's it's used to to heighten sound, not to conceal what's being said, but to project and reveal it. My daughter this week and my son both had little school performances because their school's wrapping up this next week, but uh, my daughter was in this little play. It shocked me that she did it, it was incredible like dad tears glad I was wearing sunglasses because I was in public but so so proud of her but she got up and she had a little headset mic on did her all, is amazing but at the end of it I asked her right did you feel uncomfortable because I don't know about you but microphones make they like bring out my insecurities uh hearing your own voice is always fun uh not at all actually but I asked her did you like wearing a microphone and she's like yeah I thought it was kind of cool except I was really scared that I might burp <laughs> because it was like literally glued to her face and she knew she knew the point of a microphone. It's not, it's not used to conceal something. It's placed there to project and reveal it. And, and it might be a burp or it might be a teaching or a proclamation or anything, a truth that's being communicated. And what Jesus is here saying is whether it's a lamp or a microphone, what he's saying is I'm telling you these things now in secret. But the reason for announcing God's kingdom, for bringing God's light into the world is so everyone will see it. Think of the explosion of the early church in the book of Acts. It would not be long that there's just 12 people who are following Jesus. Soon thousands will see what's being revealed to these his closest of friends in this moment. You see, there's a promise and I think a warning in what Jesus is saying. The promise is that the message of the kingdom will spread. And the promise, please hear me, is that you won't stand alone. But there's a warning You need to make sure that you hear and that you receive and believe what Jesus is saying now. In Philippians chapter two, it it makes the statement that at the name of every at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. But Romans 14 talks about a future day of judgment where all of creation will stand before him. And in that day, it's no longer that they should bow. It says that every knee will bow in that moment, that everyone will be humbled in his presence. But if you wait until that day to bow a knee to Jesus, it's too late. All will recognize and agree in that moment that he's king of kings and Lord of lords and worthy of their life. Worthy to be a savior and Lord. But for many on that day, it will be too late. Don't let that be you. Every knee should bow to Jesus, the king. The truth of God's kingdom is that what's in secret will soon be revealed in the open. But here's the second thing. The kingdom story here teaches me that there's a light for this world and it must not be concealed. Okay, Think about that. The kingdom story here teaches me that there's a light for this world and that it must not be concealed. Consider what Jesus said about a lamp. He he uses this simple story that includes a very common object, the little lamp, in a very familiar scene inside a home. Remember the little clay dish filled with oil, a little wick sticking in it. Jesus uses a definite article though when talking about the lamp. It's not an indefinite. The idea is that the lamp Not just a lamp or any lamp. It's a specific authoritative lamp. He says when the lamp is placed there, it's not to be covered. It's not to be concealed. So what is he telling the first century audience that they would understand and pick up on? Why is he talking about the lamp? Well, the lamp in the Old Testament, think with me. In the Old Testament, the lamp spoke of God himself and his revealed truth to the world through the law. And Jesus is here speaking about the light that's come into the world. He's speaking about himself. Jesus spoke to the people, it says in John chapter eight, more than once and said, I am the light of the world. In the Old Testament, that light, the lamp was God himself, or it was his expressed word and law. And Jesus becomes the word among us, the light amongst men what jesus is saying to his first century audience very clearly is that he's embodied what they had anticipated and always viewed as god himself bringing illumination he's saying that is me i am him here among you now here's what's wild it's not just that jesus makes such a bold statement here about how he is god who's come to give light and life In Matthew's gospel, chapter five, you know that he did much more than just explain that he himself was the light. He then told his disciples that they were the light of the world because he would then indwell them. Remember, he he told them, you are the light of the world. It's emphatic there. You are the only light in this world. Like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden, no one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on its stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. Jesus doesn't just do the bold thing of making himself, taking the image that's used in the Old Testament for God, making himself that image. He then will look at his followers and say, and now it's your role. Now it's God in you working through you. Listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're not just hired to be his PR team. It's that you are indwelt by the spirit of God. Scripture says. And you're now the light bearers, the truth bearers in the world, that that without you revealing and speaking the truth, the world will remain in darkness. The world will be void of God's truth and light. But keep this in mind, like I had said a few weeks ago, we have to be careful, though, not to carry a sword into a field that's ready for harvest, because that field that's ready for harvest is just that. It's not a battleground, though. I have one enemy that I'm meant to put on spiritual armor when, when doing combat with. That one enemy is the deceiver. It's Satan who's, who's begun this whole rebellion that all of us are caught up in the tension of for all of eternity. But my enemy is never a person who can look me in the eye. It's never a person who'd even mark themselves as my enemy. I have one enemy. In fact, in scripture, it says this of Jesus. It says, for God did not send his world into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. If I'm taking Jesus to people and wanting to plant the seed of his good news in their lives, then I need to be sure that I'm doing it like Jesus has done it. And that I'm doing it like God has done it. Where he sent his son not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. I need to make sure that I don't come at the world either with a sword or, or some, some harsh, rude attitude where I'm condemning others. Because Jesus did not do that. Because that was never God's, the heaven's game plan for the world. Listen, I must be careful not to see myself as a warrior with a sword approaching anyone. I'm to come humbly with a bag of seed, believing that the transforming power, the life-giving power of Jesus can take root in someone's life and dramatically transform them. You see, the kingdom story teaches us that there's a light for this world and it must not be concealed. But here's a third thing. The kingdom of God, in the kingdom of God, it's not what you get... But what Jesus communicates here is that it's what you use. The third thing is that in the kingdom of God, it's not what you get. It's what you use that matters. You see, it's really easy for me, at least I can't speak for you, but for me to look at other people and to see their gifts and and the talents that God has entrusted them with. And and then to look in a mirror and start making excuses because I, I know that God wants to use those people to expand his kingdom, to bring love and, and life into the community around us. Because I can see how God would use their personality, or he'd use their gifting, or he'd use the size of their brain. But but then I'd look at myself and I'd go, hang on, when God handed out gifts, it was like those people kept getting back in line and, and getting back in line again and again. And then by the time they called my number and I got to the counter they're like, I'm sorry we're fresh out. Like this is <laughs> But if that's the way we think then I think I'm looking at all things wrong. Because I need to quit looking at what others have been given because what Jesus pinpoints here is that I need to instead look at myself and I need to start giving to others what I have been given. Look at verse 24 and 25. That's what he's talking about here. That I'm not to look at other people and envy what they've been given, but I'm to look at other people and look to give to them what God has already given me. And this is not, please hear me, this is not, we're not about to like, hey, let's change this church and we're gonna go into this, God wants you rich and happy, so give me your money so then God can give you more. That's lame and twisted, it's manipulated, manipulative, and hear it, think about it, my kingdom is at the center rather than his kingdom. Jesus is concerned with how you hear and then what you do with what you've received. There's a kingdom principle here that those who give, more will be given to them. It's knowledge of Jesus. The the more you share it and give it away, the more you'll be given. It's a friendship. If you approach your friendship with, with wanting to give and not just to get something from it, then your friendship will become much deeper. It's a relationship or a marriage where if you approach it as anything less than what you can give to it or to that person you're in a marriage with. If, if you make it about yourself and, and, and how you feel and needing to feel important or validated or satisfied, you'll lose what you have, Jesus says. You'll destroy it. You have to approach it to give something to it. Okay, think about the second parable Jesus gives here. About a seed that grows while no one is watching, while no one is working to make it grow. It just miraculously grows. The guy plants the seed, goes to bed, wakes up the next day, and look what happened. Last week we had talked, or the last time we were together, we had talked about the parable of the sower and the seed. And we defined that seed as not being the scriptures, per se, but specifically representing Jesus himself. So what is Jesus teaching us about what he's doing and how he's doing it? Well, to be a farmer, remember you plant the seed and then you stop and you rest and wait for God to do the miraculous work is what it says in this story. To be a farmer, it would take a great deal of faith to do that. And a great deal of patience. Farmer would plant the seed and and then would be powerless to make it grow. They can do nothing but, but plant and then wait. And then verse 28, for the earth yields the crop by itself. Do you see the little mini scenes? The farmer plants it and then he sleeps while the seed miraculously grows. And then he jumps up to harvest the seed. But the emphasis in Jesus' parable is upon the mysterious, miraculous growth of that seed that happens without any aid or knowledge of the farmer. He's not even present to make it grow. He's sleeping. And I believe in this story that Jesus tells us that his disciples are like this farmer, that that includes me and you if you follow Jesus. And he's telling them that what they would do, what I would have to do is faithfully plant the seed of Jesus and yet be patient while while they were powerless, while I am powerless to make what is planted there grow. Because the growth of the seed in the soil is God's miraculous work in the story. The responsibility on me is simply to plant the seed itself. The truth of this parable is really well illustrated, I think, even in the growth of the early church. In First Corinthians, Paul writes that church and he says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God alone came and brought the increase. We do our part. We, we prepare the ground in people's lives or in our community. We're trying to remove these obstacles, these stones, these uh, misunderstandings and misrepresentations of, of what it means to be a follower of Jesus and who God is and who Jesus really is. We're trying to remove those from people's paths so that the, the ground is without being a rocky, hard soil. And then we plant the seed of Jesus. And then we just patiently wait and water. And God alone does the life-giving part. And we don't know if life will spring up or when that life change will happen. So think about it. If that's true, then your job isn't to save anyone. Your job is simply to be faithful to plant. And if that's true, what Jesus is teaching us here is really liberating. It's really liberating. In fact, this is the fourth thing is that his teaching here about the kingdom of God is that you get to be a part of the work, but you are not solely responsible for the work. He's telling us here, you get to be a part of the work of the kingdom, but you are not solely responsible for that work because your job isn't to save anyone. Your job is simply to be faithful to plant. And what does planting that seed look like? Well, at the very least, it's not hiding under a basket. It's, it's not concealing the truth of Jesus that exists in our lives. It's talking openly about Jesus, forgiveness and transforming work in your life. It's it's inviting someone to a place where they will hear Jesus spoken of. It's being willing to be the person at any place to speak of Jesus. It's bringing someone into your home to see how you live and treat your family. It's being respectful towards an authority figure who no one else seems motivated to show respect to. It's comforting someone while they endure pain like Jesus comforts you. It's standing by someone when they make a mistake because that's what Jesus has done for you. It's quietly praying for someone who's lost and hurting. It's being generous and loving towards those who are marginalized and overlooked and discarded by others. It's patiently continuing to share the love of Jesus with them, even when it seems and think, and you think and it feels absolutely hopeless. We have this privilege and blessing of being a part of the work of God's kingdom and the life of an individual, but we are not solely responsible for that work, but we get to be a part of it, which excites me. It excites me even as I look at my peers in younger generations, because my peers in a younger generation, they're longing for significance, and the kingdom of God is the answer for the heart that longs for significance. Because it's not just about like, oh, I don't want to work for the big company. I'd rather work for something smaller, even if it means that I make less, because I want to be a part of something that matters or that's doing good in the world. The thing that, that is going to connect them with true significance is being a part of an eternal work. And the eternal work is not just pushing people towards brand loyalty of Christianity. It's pushing people towards a relationship with Jesus that will change and transform them forever. The heart that longs for significance finds its rest and joy and purpose in the kingdom of God. Your job isn't to save anyone. Your job is simply to be faithful to plant the seed. And that should feel liberating to you and I. When you think about it, Jesus' parable of the soil and the seed that he had previously told them about the four different kinds of soil, it could have discouraged them because three quarters of what was represented in Jesus' story in the end rejected the seed. But the parable here of Jesus would have reassured them that they'd plant it and they'd go to sleep and walk away and that God miraculously would bring life in a moment where they least expected it. It's encouraging. It's telling you that God's working even if you don't see it. Beneath the surface that life is forming. My friends, the the salvation of an individual does not solely rest on my shoulders. It's not my job to argue anyone into the faith. It's not my job to scare someone into the faith. It's not my job to push them into the faith. Parents... Parents, hear me on this. We can't scare them or push them or argue them into following Jesus. If we try, you will find that someone else will intimidate them and push them and argue them away from their choice to follow Jesus. My job is simply to lovingly and patiently plant the seed. And that seed is not just principles in a book that that we're trying to give to someone to say, do the right thing. That seed is Jesus himself who will transform their heart and take a heart of stone and put a heart of flesh inside of them. He will transform them. The seed that we drop is not just principles of good living and right choices. The seed that we give them is the love and grace and compassion of Jesus. And that seed is power packed with life inside of it. To be like Jesus in the way that I treat them and others to speak to Jesus about them in prayer and to speak of Jesus whenever there's an opportunity to do so and then to trust in Jesus to bring the harvest in his time because the seed holds within itself the power for its growth and nothing can hurry its development or growth along. The seed needs time to germinate, to push roots down before springing up above the surface. And I'm sure I'm not a farmer. I'm sure it would be easy as a farmer, though, to get discouraged when your job is just to plant the seed and then to wait. But remember, in God's kingdom, God is always working beneath the surface, behind the scenes. Paul wrote to the church in Galatians chapter six. He said, let us not become weary in doing good for at the proper time. We will reap a harvest if we do not give up. See, in the kingdom of God, you get to be a part of the work, but you are not solely responsible for the work. We must have faith and patience as members and ambassadors of his kingdom. Okay, the final little parable real quick, and then we'll transition into communion. The final little parable he tells here is the parable of a mustard seed. And I think that what it teaches us, here's the other little lesson, is that even the seemingly insignificant is significant in the kingdom of God. Even the insignificant is significant in the kingdom of God. The little mustard seed, again, they give you this free stuff when you lead trips in Israel, and they gave me this little tiny glass, little vial, and I didn't understand what it was until someone told me, that's a mustard seed inside. Just a little tiny single mustard seed. This little tiny seed, it's the smallest of seeds for your garden, And yet it grows into the largest plant in the garden. Now, Jesus here, he says, this is the smallest of seeds in the world. And some push and say, hang on, Jesus is a false teacher because there's actually smaller seeds than this well no that's not the case Jesus is using a common idiom in comparison used in the culture the Mishnah which is uh, rabbinic writings from uh, contemporaries of Jesus who are rabbis of the day uh, they compare a mustard seed in their writings to the smallest possible measurement of anything that when they had to break things down to the smallest of levels and measuring things out that they would use a mustard seed and so that's why Jesus picks up on this imagery But Jesus' point was to contrast the mustard bush's microscopic beginnings with its massive final outcome. Because that little seed would sometimes grow as big as 8 or 10 foot tall in the form of the bush that would come out of that little seed. Here, get nerdy with me for a second. There's a a historian and contemporary of Jesus who wrote about the mustard seed, and this is very nerdy, but stick with me. His name is Pliny the Younger. Um, He's not just the Holy Grail of West Coast IPAs. He was also a Roman official whose writings we still have access to today, including 247 of his letters that he wrote to his friends and other local Roman officials during that era. He lived about a generation after Jesus. But Pliny mentioned that the mustard seed was believed by some to have health benefits, but he also mentioned this, and this is what's fascinating to me. This is what the culture thought in jesus day about the mustard plant he said it grows entirely wild when it has once been sown it is scarcely possible to get the place free of it as the seed when it falls germinates at once i'll repeat that when we have less of a flyover here you go It grows entirely wild. When it has once been sown, it is scarcely possible to get the place free of it as the seed, when it falls, germinates at once. Now, why am I giving you this nerdy fun fact? Well, because Pliny Illuminates for us is something not just about the culture and how it used it in comparison to the smallest of measurements, but that the culture also viewed it as near impossible to stop from growing and spreading once it was planted. And Jesus uses that imagery... I think to precisely communicate that very same thing to us. That it's near impossible to stop it from growing and spreading once it's taken root, once it's hit the ground, even as Piney said, it seems to immediately begin the process. It almost seems anticlimactic when you think about it that the process of the gospel, of the kingdom's work in someone's life, is not an event. Jesus said instead, it's planting and praying. It can feel anticlimactic. It's so counterintuitive for us. And this is how God works, though, that God's kingdom plan and kingdom pattern isn't so much about starting big with the bang so much as it is about starting small with the littlest of all of the seeds. Jesus arrival itself. Think about this is so different than what others expected and anticipated. They are hoping for this explosive moment for fireworks and a king to show up with a sword emerging from the emperor's palace. But Jesus instead, like the little insignificant mustard seed, that God would come being born to an obscure family, not into royalty. That the announcement of his arrival would be made to shepherds, which were the lowest people in society. That he'd be laid not in a palace, but in a feeding trough. That he'd grow up as a a carpenter and not a prince. That he'd have a following, but not in a city. It was in in with country folk. Ultimately, his crowning moment... Is him on a cross looking defeated, yet crying out in victory, it's finished. And then like a seed, he'd be buried in the ground. Not to decay, but but to spring up with new life. And then he would entrust his his message and his mission to these blue-collar teenage disciples who at the street level, not in the White House or not in the palace is in Rome, uh, they would go and begin to affect and influence the culture. And from 12 disciples, there'd be 500 disciples following Jesus and then 3,000 people being saved at Pentecost just 40 days after the resurrection to now fast forward to us today to literal millions, hundreds of millions that could stretch into billions of people around the globe who believe in this Jesus that started so small and easily overlooked like the smallest of seeds listen everything about this story is backwards and not how we would have written the script but this is how God purposefully worked hear me on this these stories teach me that the the seed doesn't grow because of us the seed grows in spite of us moms and dads take heart in that the seed won't grow because of you in the end it's going to grow in spite of you Grandma and grandpa, don't lose hope. Spouse or coworker or classmate or friend or neighbor, remember we sow the seed and its growth after we sow it is not dependent upon us. If and when it grows, it will grow in spite of us. But when it grows, it will be a massive and amazing impact that's felt and seen by all like a tiny mustard seed. Listen, we're not trying to win people over merely to an ideology. We're not trying to develop brand loyalty. We're not trying even to get people just to vote conservatively. No, we are trying to introduce people to Jesus personally. That is what we're doing. Now, I'm running out of time. I'll just finish by telling you this. Uh, this, you can close your Bible. We need to transition. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I had a, a day off where it was just myself and my youngest daughter at home. She's four. And so Declan and I decided to go to Home Depot and buy some plants, but buy some seeds and to plant them in our backyard. And we planted them, and it was a lot of fun doing it together. Um, very sweet. And the next morning, she was so very excited to take me out to the backyard to scope out the progress. And she looked both bewildered and very disappointed when she grabbed my hand and looked up at me and said, Dad, they are not working. I think sometimes we're as silly and childless as she is. Where we forget that the kingdom work in my life, it's sometimes taking root and slow in my mind to develop and to show signs of life. The things I'd love to see in my family or in our community or in my neighborhood. The things that we long to see in our children. That sometimes we, like her, we show up the next day and we look and go, it's not working. The seed will grow and when it grows, it'll have massive impact and byproduct in someone's life. And you and I, we don't have to be the Apostle Paul to see that kind of impact. We don't need to be Billy Graham or any other famous preacher because their gospel is no better or more powerful than the one that we herald because it's the same gospel of Jesus' love and grace, his redemption and restoration. And that's where the power to transform a life is found, not in the means of communicating it, but just in the seed itself when planted. We don't need more clever tactics or creative approaches. What we need is more confidence in the power of the seed of the gospel. And my friends, the power of the seed of the gospel is on display in each of our lives if we've chosen to follow Jesus because he's at work transforming our lives. And that testimony has power. Share it with confidence. Confidence. That the power of the gospel is it on display in your life, that that like the mustard seed that entered my heart that was full of bitterness and, and anger and resentment, that it freed me from those things and then grew into something I would have never, ever imagined. Listen, may our faith never be wrapped up in our ability to make stuff happen in life or in the kingdom. Because we don't have to be great or or carry and share in order to carry and share the gospel. Because the gospel's greatness is enough. It's great enough in and of itself. I don't have to be great in order to dispense it in the lives of others or plant it and see impact. I just need to be faithful to plant it. And then I need to make sure that my faith is always in the power of the gospel of Jesus alone. And the love and the forgiveness and the peace and the hope and the joy and the belonging that's found in Jesus in planting that seed.